Today I'd like to focus on the most enlightening and challenging topic. Sex. More or less. I know what kind of a force group can become in your lives. You tell things here, intimate things. In the heat of passion. Why would you be ashamed of being a shrink? I told you I was a shrink. Dr. Bill Kappa is about to learn things he never knew. You're trying to play it safe, trying to see me as a case instead of as a female. About human desires. <laughs> One of my patients was killed last night. He was stabbed in the chest 38 times. Now he's probing their deepest secrets. You know what kind of power people hand over to streets? Well, maybe sometimes they hand over more than they want. But somebody's secret will make him the next target. Tell me about this Monday group. There's five patients in the group. Like five cuckoos? No. Four neurotics of varying degrees and one killer. He's being drawn deeper. I don't really know who you are, what you do. You have all the power. Into a world can't explain. You've fallen into a trap. A hunger he can't resist. Oh, God, I'm not who you think I am. And a danger <laughs> he can't escape. Whoever it was was a maniac. You think it could have been a woman? You know what I think? I think it was you. People are getting killed around here. You understand that? Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. And this week we are going to be continuing our series on Basic Instinct Knockoffs. These were the films that took over the video stores in the mid-1990s. But before we get to that, what have you been up to? I have been working my way through the animated Star Wars series, so watched all of Rebels, which was fine, and now I'm going through Clone Wars. This is for work, by the way, um, but, but now I'm going through Clone Wars, and this is something that I had very carefully avoided for a long time because I consider the original Star Wars trilogy the only thing that's canon. Yeah. And then there's like concentric circles of almost canon. And so like the prequel trilogy, like, okay, like there are a lot of things about it I don't like, but that's almost canon. And the sequel trilogy is maybe like another sphere outside of that because it just was all kind of a knockoff of the originals. And then the animated series I consider not canon, Disney and Lucasfilm disagree. They say Clone Wars is canon, so now I'm going through it. And it actually is filling in a lot of the gaps and questions I had between episodes two and three. Uh, the, sort of the development of Padme and Anakin's relationship and how how it is that the Jedi didn't see it coming. Uh, the show actually does a pretty great job of establishing things that make sense in that universe. So I'm glad I'm finally going through it. I'm not sure I would go through it a second time but uh for for those of you who have issues with episodes two and three in the prequel trilogy some things may be answered in clone wars so speaking of science fiction completionism <laughs> i recently watched 
1973 Battle for the Planet of the Apes. This was the only one of the original Planet of the Apes movies that I had not seen. For years and years, I put it off. I heard it kind of sucked. It was okay. I think the biggest problem with it is that with all its advertising, the posters and stuff like that, it was supposed to be the final battle between mankind and ape kind. And what ends up being actually is like a small enclave of apes versus like one platoon of soldiers that were sent out from a city to fight them. So it's like really, really small scale for the final battle for control of the planet of the apes. And that's what really does it in, in my opinion. Other than that, it was kind of like part of the diminishing returns of the original Planet of the Apes series. But I'm glad I watched it. I now feel like I am completely versed in the original Planet of the Apes movie series. But let's not go all the way back to the 70s. Let's start by going back to the mid-1990s. Mid-1990s, I visited England, where I went into a games workshop and hung out with the guy there who gave me this patch, the Space Marines patch. Does that look familiar to you guys? Is that from, is that going to be something from Alien? Like something very, very much in the background there or? No, something more recent that we watched. Hmm. Space Marines. This patch appears on the jacket of one of the characters in today's movie, we will get into that later. <laughs> um, so first, a background to 1994, the year that the movie Color of Night came out. In internet news, the World Wide Web was born when Tim Berners-Lee published the first web page. It was probably better than the web page we have now for this show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the first web page. Uh, video game news... Doom, the first first-person shooting game comes out. Also, the PlayStation 1 came out. So, video games really starting to take off. Movies, the top-grossing film was Forrest Gump, which made $330 million. And the number one TV show that year was Seinfeld. Also that year, the American Psychiatric Association released the DSM-4, the fourth version of the Diagnostic Statistic Manual. Notably in it, it officially renames multiple personality disorder diagnosis to dissociative identity disorder. January 19th, record cold temperatures hit the eastern United States. In Indiana, they had the coldest temperature ever measured, minus 36 Fahrenheit, which is negative 38 Celsius. In February, the Edvard Munch painting The Scream was stolen in Oslo. It was recovered in May. March 21st at the 66th Academy Awards, Schindler's List took seven Oscars, including Best Picture, and Steven Spielberg won Best Director for that film. On April 8th, the dead body of Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, was found at his home in Seattle. The cause of death is believed to be suicide three days earlier. May 26th, Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley are married in the Dominican Republic, secretly, although it wasn't secret for long. 
On June 12th, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered outside the Simpson home in Los Angeles. Five days later, suspect O.J. Simpson would lead police on a low-speed chase. July 5th, Jeff Bezos founds Amazon. And then August 19th, Color of Night is released. Color of Night was the first Disney film released with an NC-17 rating. It was not released NC-17 in the U.S., but internationally it was. In the U.S., it was R. Some notable things about the film, you probably guessed this, but there were some artistic differences between the director and the producer for this film. Director Richard Rush, best known for The Stuntman, had his own take on the film. He was a pretty colorful character. He made claims like, I invented Rack Focus and I got Paul Verhoeven the Robocop job. (laughs) So not sure whether we would have liked Richard Rush's version any better. But to tell you a little bit about producer Andrew Vajna, he's got his own epic backstory. And this is where I'd like to introduce a new segment for our podcast called All Roads Lead to Gary Oldman. Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! So, (laughs) Basha was born in Budapest, fled to Canada when he was 12, didn't speak any English, didn't have any friends, and ended up eventually at UCLA studying cinematography. His initial forays into film didn't work out, so he started a wig-making business with a friend, which actually really took off and he became so successful he was able to sell the business and re-engage with film. He got involved in theatrical distribution in Hong Kong, which eventually led him to meet producer Mario Kassar at the Cannes Film Festival in 1975. Kassar, by the way, we'll get to, I'm sure, again and again on this podcast because he produced such favorites as Total Recall, Basic Instinct, and Showgirls, all with Verhoeven, in addition to a couple other favorites, Terminator 2, things like that. They decided to team up, and Kassar and Vajna produced their first feature, Rambo, First Blood, in 1982. They worked on and off together, but Vajna ended up forming his own company called Synergy Productions, which then made an alliance with Disney for distribution in North America. Some of the hits of Synergy included film Medicine Man, directed by John McTiernan. Christmas 1993 saw the release of Tombstone. And in 1994, Synergy released Renaissance Man and Color of Night. 1995 was a much better year. Die Hard with a Vengeance, Judge Dredd, Nixon, which actually got four Oscar nods, and, drumroll, The Scarlet Letter, starring Gary Oldman. Wow. All roads. (laughs) All roads. I think this segment is got to be a recurring feature, but it's got to be called All Roads Lead to Gary Oldman, If Your Name is Johanna. (laughs) Because that was a long road. (laughs) It was, but we got there. Anyway, so Vajna had his own vision of how to make Color of Night a commercial success. And there was a pretty public dispute between Rush and Vajna about this. So eventually there were four versions of the film made. The R-rated theatrical release in the U.S., the international theatrical release, an R-rated director's cut, and an unrated director's cut. The film won a Razzie for Worst Picture in 1994, but it was one of the top 20 most rented films in 1995 once it got to home video. Mm -hmm. Worldwide total gross of $46.7 million, 
compared to its $40 million production budget, so very, very slim margin of victory there. And say what you will about the film, the screenplay, I think, wasn't terrible, especially for a first-time effort, but I saw the name Billy Ray come up and I said, oh, I know that guy, wrote the screenplay for Captain Phillips and Richard Jewell, so it's kind of interesting to see this film in that lineup. And I have a lot to say about the cast, but I think we'll get into that when we dig into the film. So I just want to say, I don't know if we all saw the same version. Once again, as with the loft fiasco, uh, <laughs> I can only say that I watched the R-rated U.S. version, which I believe is Bajna's cut. But I have heard a rumor, I don't know how true this is, that Rush, whenever he got a bad review, he would send a copy of his cut to that same reviewer to watch and unanimously, everyone preferred Rush's cut. Mm -hmm. We are not actually reviewing Rush's cut. We are reviewing Bajna's cut, but we'll just keep that in the back of your head. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I think that nothing goes better with a movie that's heavy on the sex than a cocktail. We are doing a lot of drinking on this show. <laughs> we are doing a lot of drinking on this show, and I'm not done. Okay. <laughs> what I chose was Bitter Crush. And as we talk about the movie, I'm sure that you'll see that this is an appropriate drink to have. And um, so for a Bitter Crush, I'll just dive right into it. It's crushed ice, two ounces of Vaporol, which is, um, which mm. is a bitter orange aperitif is that how you pronounce it not sure yeah um okay one and a half ounces of white rum a teaspoon of lemon juice a half to one teaspoon of sugar and you garnish it with a lemon twist um so to prep you fill an eight to ten ounce highball glass with crushed ice stir together with the apple roll rum lemon juice and uh, bitters in a small glass measuring cup add sugar to taste stirring until the sugar is dissolved and then you pour it over ice nice that yeah. actually sounds really good i, I, have never, I thought so too i have yeah. never had a bitter crush but i have the ingredients with the exception of i might have to use angostura bitters but i'm gonna give this a shot i might try this today because i have not had this drink before okay i'll send you the link <laughs> this opens with someone committing suicide they jump out the window of this skyscraper. So I want to know which had the better skyscraper fall setup: loft or color of night? Oh, color of night. <laughs> I love I love that huge window in his office. It just made for a great, impactful scene. Also, higher skyscraper, right? I mean, yes, <laughs> that was that was a pretty tremendous death. I also love the shot from underneath the pavement through the glass to the blood. 
We, we just got a lot more out of this jump than we did from Loft. I disagree. Right. I am going with Loft on this one because I liked it at night and it was much more mysterious. It drew me in more, that opening fall in Loft. But I'm overruled on this one. So next question. Who was the more defiant smoker? Sharon Stone's <laughs> Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct or Casey Heinz in the therapy session in Color of Night? Sharon started it. <laughs> Sharon started it. Yeah, I would say I would say Sharon um, only because she was clearly using it as a power play against everyone in the whole room. Casey was just being an asshole. Like he, right. you know, he wasn't using it to stick it to anybody the way Sharon was. I think Catherine Trammell wins this. Like that is the classic all-time smoking scene, in my opinion. Yeah, what um, are you gonna do? Arrest me? Okay. <laughs> who is the who's a worse therapist? Gene Triplehorn's Dr. Beth Garner in Basic Instinct or Bruce Willis's Dr. Bill Kappa in Color of Night? I'm going to start. I'm going to say worst therapist is Bruce Willis's Dr. Kappa in Color of Night because Gene Triplehorn actually seemed okay, she may have been Looney Tunes, but she actually seemed to care about Nick and what like was seemed to be doing some sort of actual therapy with him. Whereas Bill has no idea who these people are, walks in and is like, I'm going to take over this therapy session. You know, <laughs> um, Sorry, like, my best friend died. <laughs> that's my case for, for as do you guys disagree or agree? So oh. I definitely, definitely agree that, Gene Triplehorn is a better therapist, but here's where I'm going to introduce my main theory about the film. This follows Vertigo to a T in terms of the storytelling formula. So I think part of the whole plot is that I can't remember. Is it Bill? Um, Bill. B Bill is yeah. Bruce Willis's I, character. I just keep thinking like Bruce Willis, but Bill, sure, he has a real name. He has this traumatic incident in the beginning that throws him off his game and makes him think he can't do the job he's been trained to do. Meanwhile, there's some like weird identity mix-up kind of stuff going on in the background while he slowly falls in love with the femme fatale, who then eventually also falls off a very tall building. Uh, almost. But um, same kind of height thing that is going on in Vertigo as well with the, the deaths from the tall tower. So I... I think that part of the plot is that he's seriously off his game in this film. A la Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to I would have to agree with that. You know, I, I love Bruce Willis a lot. A lot, guys. Uh, okay. A lot. Anyway. But <laughs> Keep it in your pants, Rosie. <laughs> I, I'm having a hard time doing that after seeing that movie. I mean, whoo, gave me the vapors. But anyway. No, he, he 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 did a he did a he did a good you know he did a good job acting like somebody struggling to get his feet under him you know uh, in his field in his field even though he didn't do a very good job because he got wrapped up in their drama which you know therapist gets wrapped up in their clients drama but you know he did kind of swoop in and take over so. So all I have taken away from this is that if there's ever a film that has both Bruce Willis. <laughs> 
and Gary Oldman in it, we're gonna end up doing it on this show. The we're fifth doomed. element! Doomed. The fifth element! Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the fifth element, of course. How can well, I forget? We have to add that to the roster. <laughs> All right. There's just too many films we have to do. Anyway, uh, <laughs> All Roads Lead. Okay. <laughs> Now, we've already hit all the way to the end of the movie, so we got to go all the way back to the beginning again, because I'm still working through the therapy group here. Who is the more believable shooter cop in recovery? Michael Douglas's Nick Curran in Basic Instinct or Lance Henriksen's Buck in Color of Night? Michael Douglas. No, I'm going to go with Lance Henriksen. He gave a pretty decent performance considering that his character is very narrowly written compared to Lance Henriksen's others. But I believed his grief and his, like, you know, working through stuff. Okay, that makes me the tiebreaker. And I may be a little biased because I'm a big Lance Henriksen fan, but I'm going with Lance Henriksen because I didn't get any kind of gravitas from having killed a person from Michael Douglas like I did from Lance Henriksen. Next. Who was the bigger nymphomaniac? Shannon Worry's Joanne in Animal Instincts or Leslie Ann Warren's Sandra in Color of Night? Can we say most believable nymphomaniac instead, yeah. of, instead of most expansive <laughs> nymphomaniac? <laughs> well, I didn't want to say better nymphomaniac, so I, I went with bigger, but uh, yeah, I, we can go with uh, believable, yeah. So this is another just brilliant casting choice. I really like Leslie Ann Warren, loved her as Miss Scarlet from Clue, and maybe there's some of that feeding into why I believed her as as an info in a way that Animal Instincts, just like not a second of it did I think that she had a real need. Leslie had enough of a, you know, clear, nervous, anxious tick. You could tell that she needed to let that tension off all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll buy that. All right, now here's one of my favorites. Who's the better loudmouth detective? George Zunza's Gus Moran in Basic Instinct? You fucked her, you goddamn, you dumb son of a bitch, you, you goddamn fucked her. You are one dumb, dumb son of a bitch. That, that guy or Ruben Blades' Hector Martinez in Color of Night, who had... What I think is one of the all-time great lines, you you want a lawyer? And and Bill says, do I need a lawyer? And Hector's like, you're in L.A. Everyone needs a lawyer, which is like the most <laughs> film noir city line ever. <laughs> so I guess you already know who my pick is. It's Hector. It's Ruben Blades is Hector. But I'll throw it back to you guys. If I were to pick most annoying, it would be Ruben Blades as Hector. But I like Ruben Blades. Like, he got on my damn nerves, you know? He was like, I, I don't know. I feel like he was too quick to jump to conclusions, and it, it it was hard for me to find that believable. I agree. Liked him better as a character. Also more annoying. Maybe the two are connected. So I think, I just thought he stole every scene that he was in. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe he, I found him less annoying than you guys. All right, we mentioned Vertigo, which has a classic femme fatale character in it. But I want to ask, is Rose in this, whose name I want to point out is a synonym for red, is Rose actually a femme fatale or is she more fitting the manic pixie dream girl trope? 
Oh, definitely more the pixie dream girl trope than a femme fatale, because it's not like it's not like she was in the movie with really a sinister motive. She was a victim. I don't really associate femme fatales with victims. I think femme fatales go in either direction. Like, it's either they're femme fatale because they're a bad guy secretly and they lure spider-like the hero into their web, or it's the other way, where they are a damsel in distress that the hero goes to save, and that is what ensnares him. Like, she may have innocent intentions of, oh, I just really need help, but nonetheless is the hero's downfall. And I think she's she's in that latter category. The film is just a little bit too messy to figure out how much agency she had at any given point. And I think that's where I would like to plant the debate is, is she a femme fatale in the sense of, does she have any agency at all? <laughs> but um, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I think that this shows kind of the way movies changed between the 50s and the 1990s where you were much more likely to encounter a manic pixie dream girl, which is when the trope arose, really, I guess the early 2000s, but it started in the 90s to some degree, much more likely to have that type of a trope than a femme fatale. I think if we go with what the movie wants us to believe, at least in the cut we saw, she doesn't seem to have a heck of a lot of agency over her actions. So while we're on the subject, let's talk about Jane March a little bit, because one of the first things I did while I was watching the film was look up how old she was. There's a laugh line at some point when Blade says something like, she's a little young to be doing this. And I was like, yeah, she looks like she's about 15. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> she, she was 18 20. years. Yeah. She was, eight. she was 20, I think. And, um, and Bruce Willis was 38. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but apparently this was not even her first film like this. She had been in a previous film called The Lover, which was just as sexually explicit and had tons of nudity. So that's why she was hired. She was hired because she already had shown that she was capable of scenes like that. But with this film, there was some point in the production where she was like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this. This is too much sex too much sex underwater there's just like i want to know how much of that is just again the sharon stone leg crossing scene like how much of this is like saving face after the fact you know because mm. one thing that will come up with these films over and over again with these erotic thrillers of the 90s is people claim they ruined their careers like, I couldn't get another role. We'll talk more about this when we get to the next film. Everybody seems to try to disavow these things after they've been in them. And I think one way of doing that may be like, well, I didn't really want to do that scene, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, well, that's what you signed on for, you know? Right. Um, well, or you read a script and you have a certain idea of how that scene's going to go. And then when you realize where the camera is or something, then it's like, oh, this scene is very different from what I thought. You know, I thought it was going to be a little more suggestive and a little less explicit. And I think a lot of those arguments probably did happen on set, but it was in her contract. And in this case, I think it was very clearly spelled out in her contract that she was going to be in these explicit scenes. The film was planned as an NC-17 picture. So, um... 
unlike Sharon, I I happen to believe Sharon Stone with this idea that she she didn't know it was going to happen. But um, in this case, Jane March maybe should have been prepared, despite being eighteen years younger than Bruce Willis. <laughs> Well, we don't yeah. see a lot of her again after this film, um, sadly. So maybe she is correct. I don't know. We'll get back to the nudity and the sex and all that soon enough. But first, I want to know. This is sort of can be taken in two different ways. Better car chase, basic instinct or color of night, which I think comes down to better car or cooler car or something. The 1990 Black Lotus Esprit from Basic Instinct or the 1979 Red Pontiac Firebird slash Trans Am from Color of Night? Mm. I'm going to go with the Red Trans Am only because the addition of the color has this extra menacing significance. And it, it added another layer to the car chase that is not present in Basic Instinct, or I'd say in a lot of car chases generally, that the red car seemed to symbolize something especially uh haunting to the hero so it made it more fun i would have to agree it was definitely a more menacing car chase you couldn't see who was driving the car the windshield was blacked out which i hate it when they do that in movies just put a stunt driver in there that looks like a generic person so you can't recognize who it is instead of blacking out the windshield and making it obvious i don't know why it just bothers me but yeah, I like that chasing better. It was more exciting. The symbolism of the red car definitely added to it. That's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to agree with you guys also because the chase scene, I think, was better and longer. And also props to the 70s Pontiac Firebird. I will take that car over Nick's Pontiac 6000, which he tries to keep up with a Lotus in. So Pontiac, definitely Pontiac wins the day in the 70s by the 90s. No. Nah. <laughs> All right. This one's particularly targeted at Rosie first here. Oh, my. Better club scene. Boz's version of the limelight in Basic Instinct or the whiskey in Color of Night. Definitely the whiskey. The whiskey was more believable to me, for sure, as, you know, one who frequented a lot of clubs in the 90s. That one was definitely more believable to me, especially since there wasn't a dance-off, like there was in Basic <laughs> Instinct. <laughs> also, inexplicable teal cashmere sweaters on the dance floor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who wears cashmere to the club? <laughs> As a young punk rocker, I got to always give props to the whiskey. We will talk more about the whiskey in an upcoming episode. But as much as I like the whiskey and the Sunset Strip and all that, I got to go with Boz's soundstage version of the New York's Limelight because that was more my type of club. And the music in that scene, way better. Like, that's actual club music. The music is great. I don't really mm -hmm. care for the music in um, Color of Night, but the music in Basic Instinct, I, I would actually listen to that. Yeah, if we could add the music from Basic Instinct to the whiskey in Color of Night, it would be perfect. Who had a better loft for kinky sex and murder, the guys in Loft or Casey in Color of Night? <laughs> you guys I are mean... <laughs> 
Which loft was better for this? <laughs> Casey from Color of Night probably had the better loft, and he reminded me of a lot of people we used to know, Eric. <laughs> so <laughs> that part's getting cut out of this. <laughs> so yeah, actually, the loft in Color of Night reminds me of lofts I've actually been in. I don't know. I, you know, I just haven't lived the yuppie Belgian lifestyle. Like, holy crap, was that place cool. But also, yeah. holy crap, do you have to be a billionaire to afford that place? <laughs> you know, even with yeah. like eight guys going in on the rent, it had to be you know, pretty steep, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh... Johanna, you're really quiet and looks like you're Googling. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, um, I got a phone call and my phone is connected to my headphones through Bluetooth. And so suddenly all I could hear was the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, which is my ringtone, and it was... <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> it was very alarming. I was, I was like, where is that music coming from? Do we need to repeat all that we just nope. went through? <laughs> <laughs> I, she's over there Googling, what did lofts look like in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you have no opinion on this no, one. No, I very much prefer the loft in the loft, only because that's the place I would like to be murdered in. Like, of all of the places in the world, <laughs> that would be a pretty comfy, like, hot, sexy place to die. Just gonna say. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, if you're gonna go out, go out in style. <laughs> <laughs> well, that rules out the maid. <laughs> Another great... Gus line. Well, we've avoided it long enough. A lot of people have said, while this movie sucks, it has one of the best sex scenes. In fact, some people have called it the best sex scene ever. So the question is, I know you guys like the sex scenes in Basic Instinct. Which had the better sex scene? Basic Instinct or Color of Night? Mm. I let you take this one first, Rosie. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, man, it, you know, they all have a tendency to have pool scenes too. I wouldn't have to say the color of night. Yeah, I'm biased, but you know, I think that was, uh, that was the most of Bruce Willis we had ever seen in any movie, I think. Yep. And, um, it's a nice view. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, but it, I mean, it was it it was hot. You know that it, it it showed everything without showing everything. Um, I could see why people would rent the film only for the sex scene in this movie. Uh, yeah, and, and I just I don't know. I'm there. I don't know. <laughs> I think Color of Night has one of the hottest, if not the hottest sex scene that it seems like human beings are capable of reaching. Like I watched that sex scene and thought I could probably have sex that good under the right circumstances. And boy, is that hot. The sex scene in Basic Instinct is like non-human levels of eroticism. Just like the way that sex scene is done I have, I will never get there. Like it will never, it will never be that good for me. There will never be that much like build up and suspense and like edging. Like I'll, I'll, it'll just, I'll never quite get there. And so I, I think there's, 
sort of a level of, um, you can identify more with what's going on in Color of Night. And that definitely made it, made it steamier physically, but in terms of like mental excitement, Basic Instinct, the, um, the buildup and rhythm of that scene is really astonishing. I'm going to go in the minority here. I'm saying Basic Instinct has hotter sex scenes. One of the reasons I say that is, have you ever tried to have sex in a pool? It sucks! Water is a terrible <laughs> it lubricant. It, it is awful. The worst. <laughs> Pretty as they try to make it in this. I just all I just have flashbacks to uh, trying to have sex in the pool. It's just a bad idea. OK, public service announcement. Do not try this at home. All right. So I got to go with basic instinct. This segment brought to you by too much information. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, we've come most of the way here. So let's please don't say the word come. <laughs> that's that is most of that's all the questions here so any other thoughts i have today (laughs) so i have a question for both of you in the beginning when it seemed very clear that richie was not a cis man like whatever whatever richie was like not not a cis guy how did you interpret the beginning of the film? Because there are a number of comments where Richie says something about, I don't identify with gender in a traditional way, or I like makes a, sort of a vague blanket statement about his gender. And from his appearance, for me, my first thought was, oh, it's a trans man. It's a, it's a, a woman who has transitioned to being a man. And that was 100% what I thought was going on. And then when it seemed like halfway through the film, like... Nobody else believed that. I was, I was like, what, what? <laughs> yeah, they thought he was legitimately a dude. I want to weigh in on this first because, all right, for those who can only hear our voices and don't know us personally that are listening to this podcast, Johanna's a millennial, grew up in a little bit later, so trans acceptance I think has come a long way since the nineties. Rosie is a trans parent, right? Or a parent I am literally a... a trans parent. Yes, okay. I have. She's yes, lots of transparency trans. there. Yes, just to be transparent <laughs> on this issue. Just to be a transparent. <laughs> Finger guns. But at the time, gender dysmorphia was still listed as a disorder in the DSM, which we talked about earlier there was just a lot less visible trans people in the world. At that time, there was drag shows and there was like really over the top kind of stuff, but I can see where people would have bought into it. Okay, he's a dude. He's a really strange dude, but he's a dude because there was no spectrum Right. There was like, you're either a dude or you're not a dude. I don't know what this guy is, but he's a dude. You know, (laughs) I think that's kind of the way it would have shaken out in 1994. Yeah. Nowadays, not only audiences, I don't think anyone would really buy that. 
Yeah, it was difficult watching this movie from a 90s mindset rather than a modern day mindset, knowing what I know and having a trans child. So when I watched it, I was like, wow, that's a really bad makeup job. <laughs> and that wig is terrible. And those glasses are awful. And this is not convincing to me. But, you know, this guy's supposedly a dude, so I'm going to roll with it. But I really don't know what's going on here. So that's probably how they would have thought about things in the 90s when things were so black and white rather than uh, on a gender spectrum. But it still, like, didn't sit, that character didn't sit right with me because they didn't look right. I feel like the makeup team probably could have done a better job. So when we reach to the end of Richie's character, it's a lot easier for you to see that Richie is actually Rose. Because the mouth is Rose's mouth. It's not all prosthetics and stuff like that, like earlier in the film, which I think they could have done a better job with that. But what can you do? It's the 90s. They didn't have CGI, so I don't know. <laughs> the reviews that I read indicated that a lot of people, like, immediately said, like, well, that's obviously Jane March. <laughs> Just like, but there wasn't a lot of commentary about the character as a trans character or whether the other people in the circle, they might not have known it was Jane March, but that they should have been able to recognize that Richie was trans. That question mixed in with the rest of the whodunit question. Once you start connecting the dots and realizing like, oh, they all know Jane March, then it suddenly became like a, well... Okay, so, and I think someone at, at one point says, like, didn't any of you recognize this person? But, yeah. <laughs> For me, like, a harder thing to believe was, so when we watched Basic Instinct, I got that Nick wanted to flirt with danger, and so him sleeping with Catherine and him doing all these things was believable. But in this one, Bill just, it's like, his friend is murdered. He's like, I'm going to live in his house, thus contaminating everything about the crime crimes. The, the murder happened in the house, right? I'm not mistaken. No, right? it's in the office. It's in the office. Yeah, it's it's in, in, the in the office. office. Which well, he did go right back to having sessions in the office like the next day. He keeps having <laughs> sessions in the office and he yes. like is, sort of inserts himself into all of this stuff. That was the harder thing for me to buy. It's like, wait a minute. Why doesn't Hector like have him in jail right now? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. The cops would totally go after this guy. She just showed up out of nowhere, you know, and then suddenly this guy dies and he takes over his practice. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, so I agree with you. Like, there's a lot of problems with the plot, but the production design and the style of the film, there was a lot that I really enjoyed. The gray blood turning red when he finds the body in the artist's workshop. That was really cool. They also play this insane carnivalesque music in the first session when you get to meet all the characters. If you're going to watch any part of this, I recommend going to that scene and you will get so much context for the rest of the film, especially this weird playful vibe that just kind of comes comes in and out, but especially there. Mm -hmm. Not enough Lance Henriksen, not enough sharks. We had a pool and no sharks. <laughs> so not even a blip on the shark meter. 
But otherwise, I'd say that this is good home video fare, and I can see why it did bad in the theaters, but good on home video, because I would totally have rented this. I would have felt ripped off if I had paid full movie prices to see it. So it lies somewhere in that middle zone where it's not truly a bad film where you're like, ah, oh, I wasted my time watching this. But it's not truly a good film where you're like willing to shell out to see it first run. And I have to say this saying that we have not seen Rush's cut of this film. This makes me want to go watch Vertigo again. <laughs> it's definitely like Vertigo light, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or Vertigo triple X is <laughs> sort of sort of where, where it goes. Um, Vertigo being a much more suspenseful, better Better film. movie. We can better say movie. It. better movie. <laughs> better movie, but a lot less steamy sex. So... Still, worth revisiting now. So if we can insert the Bruce Willis sex scene into Vertigo, we would have yeah, the perfect movie. Perfect film. <laughs> it would make no sense, but... <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> so I want to remind everybody to like and subscribe. Do us a big favor. It really helps us out if you go to Apple, iTunes, and like give us a five-star review. That would really help. We just need to get the word out there about the show. If you want to get a word to us, you can email us at gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. Uh, and I know you're going to edit this out, so I'm going to put a space between it. I forgot to have my mic plugged in at the beginning of the show. That's why I sounded like crap. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's not getting edited out. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I pulled a Rosie. I did a great job. Yeah.